As we continue studying the book of Revelation, we are now entering into the second set of uh, judgments. These two chapters that we're going to be studying are a little bit heavier than the ones that we studied the last week. A little difficult to digest, but important to read and comprehend. It's important for us to keep ourselves in balance and understand that if that is written here, it's for us to understand and comprehend it and to be able to share with others as well. One of the marvels of this world that intrigued me as, as a high school student was uh, machines that appeared to operate in perpetual motion. That is the action of any device that once set in motion will continue in motion forever. I always wanted to buy one of those things and never get one. But it's interesting that some people are trying to discover the answer, trying to create those machines that need no electricity, nothing, no energy outside from the first starting, and that would keep going and continue forever, forever, forever. But these kind of devices is impossible to create because in some ways they will violate either the first or the second law of thermodynamics, or maybe there's two of them. It's the energy produced by the work of this device that will eventually be lost by the friction that is generated as this device works, upsetting the energy balance. And finally, we'll stop running. Even those machines apparently are, they're gonna be keep moving and moving and moving for many hours, many days. At some point, they will stop. They will stop working because of the friction and the waste of energy that they have. So, but that doesn't stop human beings from trying to invent that kind of machines. The reality is that everything, everything in human life, everything that every human being creates falls into this category. Somehow, everything has some type of energy, food, or nutrient as a source to keep it moving. You and I, we need food to keep us moving. Well, objects needs certain type of source that will keep them moving as well. So most of the things we can say are stoppable, if I can use the word. They will stop functioning at a certain point. It's only when you and I can see, can enter into the spiritual realm, when we can see the perpetual motion becoming a reality. Because there, there is no friction, there is no wear and tear. In the spiritual world, as we read in the scriptures, God is always in motion. His kingdom is always advancing. Nothing in heaven and earth can stop the progression of his sovereign plan. Nothing. No government, no law, no devil spirit, no earthly power, no philosophy, no person on earth can stop God's will and purposes from being accomplished at some point. The ladies who are studying, experiencing God can understand that because precisely this week, 
they learned that it's nothing can stop for God to accomplish his will and his purposes and plans that he has for all of us. Nothing. Isn't that great news? That God is still in motion? That nothing can disturb what he's doing in the world? God is at work. Despite of what we see in this world, he is at work in this world. And his glory goes on forever and ever. God's glory is in perpetual motion. What does it mean? What does exactly that mean? The concept of glory that we often think is the reflection of God. Sometimes we read and we think, because we read in the Old Testament, that there is this brilliant light coming from whatever represents the presence of God. If we see the tabernacle, we see the light of fire and the column of fire. And in some ways, we see that that's the glory of God. And sometimes we are told that we need to reflect that glory in the way that we conduct our lives. So in any ways, this concept of glory, as we understand it, sometimes we are missing the reality of what the Scripture is trying to explain when we talk about God's glory. For instance, the glory of God in the Scriptures is the sum total of all His attributes, all who God is, which include the fact that He is self-existent. That's one of the greatest attributes of our God. God doesn't need food to be sustaining. He doesn't need any checkup, any tune-up. He doesn't need any maintenance. He doesn't need any outside source. He doesn't need a pat in the back so he keeps going. God exists apart from anything else anywhere in the universe. He exists and has nothing that he needs to exist. He is the self-existent one. That's our God. Then out of the very reality that he is a self-existent God, there is this action that comes that is the completion of the work that he is doing for his eternal purposes. His plan, his decrees, there is nothing that can stop God from being God. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing can prevent his glory from going on and on and on forever to accomplish his purposes, his plans for this world, for all of us. One of my favorite writers, A.W. Tozer, has a, a quote that I would like to read for you and says, God being who he is cannot cease to be what he is. And being that he is, he cannot act out of character with himself. He is at once faithful and immutable, so all his words and his acts must be and remain faithful. This is who God is. When God created earth, he made everything perfect. Everything was working in perfection, if you put it this way. He created men and women and put them in the middle of the garden. And he created him perfect. But he did men and women with, he created with one particular characteristic, different from the angels. He gave him the freedom to choose, the free will, if you put it that way. 
and they chose to disobey God. When we read Genesis 3, we read that moment when that perversion motion, in some ways, in the perspective of these words, ceased or stopped. But not in God's. Because his glory goes on forever and ever. And from Genesis 3 all the way to the book that we're reading in our studies these days, Revelation, we see God always at work, always moving, trying to put together back what he originally intended when he created this universe, this earth, these men, these women. And he is never going to stop. And when you read Genesis 3, and the way that everything was condemned, you read his plan. You, say, you see right there when he's saying that someday, somehow, through one who will come, everything will be perfect again. And that is Jesus Christ. And now we are reading a book that is telling us the other side of the story. This is the other book who, who's putting together these 66 books in the Bible and telling us everything that God intended from the beginning will be consummated right here in Revelation. Through the Bible, we read about the consequences of that original sin. Over and over, we see how men are trying to get away from God, not coming to him, and God is pursuing them. Like the heavenly hog, trying to find them to reestablish that relationship with him. Christianity is the only religion in the world that presents a God who is pursuing the object of his creation. In every religion in the world, you will see people trying to please and appease their gods. But in this one, God is willingly, even though he is just and he is uh, holy, he is a loving God, and he will never stop until he makes his plans visible. And those who trust him, who trust his son, they will enter in a special relationship with him, and they will stay with him, whatever he is, for eternity. He will make things new. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Because this one in which you and I are living, and this heaven that we probably see from a distance, will be recreated. Those who trust Jesus Christ as Savior will enjoy eternity with him in this new creation. And we will continue reading about that in the following chapters in Revelation. But for now, for now, the reality is that we as human beings and the world around us have been marred by sin. We have been contaminated with this illness, with this sinful nature. And so, the glory of God that's supposed to be reflected by the creation as it was originally intended is no longer apparent. And God wants for all his creation, for those who became new creation, to continue reflecting that glory. We were designed with that purpose in mind, to glorify God and reflect his glory into this world. But in heaven, as we read this in these chapters 10 and 11, God's glory is present. And therefore, his kingdom, his values, and his priorities reign forever and ever. The glory of God in heaven is in 
perpetual motion. But the good news is that God sent his son to this planet on a mission to conquer death, sin, and Satan. And those who have placed their faith in him will begin to reflect his glory and live out his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Spiritually now, but one day, in all the full sense of the world. Remember the lost prayer that we started talking about last week in Matthew 6.10? Remember the phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, that means that the glory, the values, the priorities, the essence of who God is and what he stands for will be re reflected here on earth as it is in heaven. Right now, spiritually, for those who are believers, they are now reflecting that glory. But one day in the, there and then, you will see how this beautiful glory will be manifested. So it's important that we understand the relationship that we need to establish with Jesus Christ because it's through him that we are going to be able to be recreated in this new dimension with a new perspective. So as we dive into Revelation 10 and 11, it's important to understand that this does have implications in our lives today. Yes, we talk about the rapture. We talk about the, the view that we in Grace Bible Church have about the chronological development of God's plan for the future. We believe that the next event in the prophetic calendar of God is the rapture of the church, meaning those who had trusted Christ as Lord and Savior will be taken from this earth before the period of the revelation starts. So in some ways, we can say we believe. And, and that's true. There are other people who believe that we are now in the middle of the tribulation, and those believe that there is no such a thing. Whatever, anybody has a right to be wrong. But let me tell you something. It's important not to understand what is the specifics of this, but to understand that whatever the Lord's promises in the Scripture, it will happen. It will come to happen. So we need to understand that whatever you are in that position, one thing for sure, you are hoping for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're longing. That's what we're hoping. So we can continue reflecting his glory as was intended in the beginning. So as we saw in chapter 9, there had been stubborn hearts toward God. They rejected what the Lord wanted for them. And the judgment fell on them, upon them. And instead of repenting, they even hardened their hearts even more. But during that time, God will be getting their attention. And many of these judgments that we are reading in these chapters, in many ways, are just to call the attention of the people in the world, to turn back to him. But I want us to see here in Revelation 10 and 11 this. As we allow God's unstoppable glory to transform our lives from the inside out, his kingdom comes. His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the main idea of these two chapters. Nothing will stop God. And his unstoppable glory will be reflected in due time. 
His kingdom will come. His will will be done. As is in heaven, right here on earth. So, in these two chapters, John is describing the events that are occurring in the middle of the tribulation. The tribulation is seven years according to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, in many of the chapters who talks about the end times, is really a parallel of this reading. And in many ways, he is presenting that there will be a time of seven years. We believe it can be a literal seven years. Other people think this is symbolic. But let's assume this is seven years. These verses 10 and 11 are happening right there, at the, almost at the end of the three and a half years of the tribulation. And at the beginning of what we call the great tribulation. So in that interim place, chapters 10 to 14 is telling us about this. This explains why John is repeating uh, this concept about three and a half years past. Three and a half years started. So we, we understand it. However, the pressing might be these events in the middle segment of the tribulation. God is not without his witness to this world. This is the main thing that we need to pay attention here. In Revelation 10 and 11, there are three important testimonies. The first one from an, a, a mighty angel in Revelation 10, 1 and 11. The second one for two special witnesses in Revelation 11, 1 to 4, 1 to 14. And then lastly, from the elders in heaven, Revelations 11, 15 to 19. So in light of what we will read in these two chapters, we're going to see three ways in which God's unstoppable glory affects the way that you and I live today. First, will affect in our works because that glory will work in us as we take the word of God seriously and we study and we take it in, that word of God. Also, will, will help us to shine, it will shine through us as we become witness of, of God. And lastly, it, it will raise from us as we lift up our worship to God. In that way, the glory of God will be active in those who have trusted Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to pay attention because we need to, need to start discovering ways that we can express that glory. Let's see each one of them. The unstoppable glory of God work in us as we take in the word of God. Without any warning, John is taking us from the scenes that are happening in heaven to scenes that are happening on earth. And this is very interesting because in all these judgments, you need to be careful because it's not a chronological series of events. Sometimes John is looking whatever is going on in heaven and the worship that is happening and all the joyful noises that are happening in heaven. And then suddenly he looks at the, at the earth and he starts seeing all the difficult and terrors that are happening on earth. And then he moves back one, one, once again to the heaven and then to the earth. That's how we read this chapter. So it's important for us not to lose track of that. Everything is a vision. But in this particular chapter, we're going to see how John became a participant of his own vision as we read it. So in verse 10, verse 1, we read, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. Verse 2, and in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. 
He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Let's pause for a moment. Let's try to digest a little bit what we're seeing. John is presenting us an amazing picture of an angel. A beautiful angel, strong. Maybe he worked out or something. He is a physical culturist, I don't know. But, but many people think that this angel, because there is a lot of imagery from the Old Testament, they think that this is Jesus Christ. First of all, Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation is never presented as an angel. He's presented as a lamb. He's presented as a king of kings, the Lord of lords, but never as an angel. So this is not Jesus Christ for at least, I'm going to give you three reasons. One, this angel has to soar an oath in the name of God Almighty, the one who is, who was, and will become. So if God is Jesus and Jesus is God, so he's swearing to himself? He can. I mean, he can, but in this case, it's not probable. This angel swore an oath in the name of Christ. Secondly, this is one of the three mighty angels. The first one appears in Revelation 5, 2. This one in verse 1 in chapter 10. And the other one will appear in chapter 18, 21. Three mighty angels, powerful angels will be happening. So these angels came down from heaven to earth. If this is Christ, then we are not making good numbers because before he does, before he comes and rapture the church, what we are waiting is for the second coming of Christ. If this is an angel that came and brought the judgment, that means that we are missing the count here. That means that are we waiting for the third coming of Christ? You, you know what I'm saying? So there is a lot of probabilities that this is just, just another angel, a mighty angel. And it's amazing the imagery that he's explaining here. It's an awesome in appearance. His voice, voice of authority, all authority is given to this angel. If one of these messenger boys are that powerful, so everybody, especially John, this is so impressed by the looks of this angel. Can you imagine how powerful is God? How glorious is the Lord? If these angels who are just messengers of the Most High have these impressive looks, just imagine if you were able to see the Almighty God in His glorious. Isaiah has a little glimpse of who God is. The Lord sitting on His throne. Remember Isaiah 6? And he couldn't believe it. It was so much for him that he almost fainted. He fainted. He, 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 he thought he was dead. Who can contemplate the holiness of the Lord? So John is watching this vision, and he is seeing this amazing angel. Now remember that this is a vision in which he is describing, very dramatic. And look what he, this angel has. He has a rainbow around him. Some people say that probably it's like a turban. It's a sign of authority. Also, some people believe that this rainbow re resembles a little bit what happened with Noah. And the promise of the Lord saying that, you know, I will never going to destroy you again. But it's going to happen. Not everybody, but some, the majority. But he is dressed in clouds. And clouds is, is, 
It's, it's a symbolism that we read in the, in the scriptures, especially in Revelation, about the transcendence of the Lord, the presence of God, the majestic looks of the Lord. He is with one foot. It's like two pillars. Remember that imagery in the Old Testament? A pillar of fire and a, and a cloud that was guiding through the tabernacle. In some ways, he's claiming authority for whatever is on earth and whatever is on the waters. So, in other words, this angel has authority. And he has a scroll. And it's open. It's a piece of paper that is open. It's very different from the one that we saw in chapter 5. The scroll was sealed with seven seals. This one is completely open. Verse 8. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again. Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea on the land. Then we jump to verse 9 saying, so I went to the angel and told him to give the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour into your stomach. There is a lot what John is looking here. There is a lot what is happening. We're not going to be able to read every single verse, but it's a, I just want you to put, put yourself for a moment thinking. Whatever this scroll is containing, it definitely, it has to relate with God's plan of redemption for the world. And John is looking at him and says, can I take it? Of course, by all means, come on in. Eat it. And then he described what will happen. So I went to the angel and I told him, uh, give me the scroll. Take it, eat it. It will be sweet as honey. But it will turn sour into your stomach. What that means? It's interesting. It's interesting that this imagery is here. Because it's related to the word of God. It contains the good news of salvation of Jesus Christ for all of us who trust him. It tells us exactly what will be the future for us who have been trusting in the Lord. But at the same time, it's telling us that the consequences of our wrong decisions, most of the time we, we're going to be, we're going to pay for those consequences. But if we put it in a different perspective, when we think about evangelistic events, when we present the gospel to people and we present the good news about what God has done for them, we see the rejection of many people to the gospel because they don't like what we're presenting. They don't want to live their lives. They don't want to commit to anything that that's going to be disrupt their way of living. So in some ways, it might be great and sweet to listen to what the Bible tells us, but as we see in Revelation today, it will be so hard to take it and to comprehend it because it will cause us such a big pain for what will happen to those beloved ones that they resist in believing in Christ. As a matter of fact, a couple of verses are passing. In the middle of this passage, we see John, that he starts seeing some things because there were thunders happening, seven thunders. And there were voices in those thunders. And he started writing. And the Lord says, oh, John, don't write. Don't write anything you're listening. 
This is not for you to write. This is just for you to watch. There are many things that are happening in that vision that we are not allowed to understand. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a beautiful verse. It tells us that the things that are revealed is for all of us to put it in practice. But the things that belong to the Lord are for him and for him alone to keep him. There are things that the Lord wants us to know. But there are things that we see in here, at least for now, that we are asked to wait, that we are not allowed to see. So the first thing that we see in Revelation chapter 10 is that the unstoppable glory of God works in us as we take in the word of God. It works in us as we take in the word of God. And we put it in practice. And we understand it. It might be sweet. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 1 Peter chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 5. Those three verses tells us that the word of God is like, is like, a, is like a meal, like a food. In some ways, it's like a meal for those who are new believers. But for those who are mature in the faith, it's supposed to be a solid food. And the criticism is so many of the Christians who are only likened to, to drink milk and never want to grow up. It's an encouragement to keep growing. When we brought our baby home and he was drinking milk, our hope is that someday he can eat solid food. It will be something weird that at five years old, he only will drink milk. But why is it okay for many believers who can spend five, 10 years, 15 years just drinking the ABCs, the simplicities of the scripture, and they don't go deeper? That's one of the reasons why they don't like to study a book of Revelation, because we cannot handle it. We cannot get it. This is scary. Well, it's in the Bible, so we can study it. We just need to chew a little bit longer the way that we're doing it right now. And sometimes I just give you big pieces and you cannot swallow it, but bear with me. This is also an indication that in these chapters we understand what we read in the New Testament, that the Word of God is sweet. Jeremiah expressed about the sweetness of the Word of God. When your words came, I ate them. And they were my joy and my heart's delight. Sometimes the Bible is sweet. It comforts us. In, Psalm, in Psalms uh, 119, we read, how sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Honey, is, it was the candy of today for us. Back then, there was no candy like, uh, like the ones that you, you know, the jelly beans that you like so much. But it was honey, and, and this is so sweet, like honey. So it was, it, it, it was special. It was great. But at the same time, the word of God can be sour because it warns us about what will happen to all of us. And this is the meaning of this one. Number two, the unstoppable glory of God shines through us as we take in the word of God. As we are witnesses of God in this world. As we become witnesses of what we just read. In the word of God. In verse 3, chapter 11, we read, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap, or sackcloth, and will prophesy during those 1,260 days. 
If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from the mouth of the that cons consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. Have you ever encountered with somebody who asks you this question? But how, how will the people that live in the jungles would know about Christ if nobody has been reached them? How about the people who are in the Antarctica? How are the people who are in, in Africa? How are the people who are in New York? Oh, well, that's a different one. How the people will know? Well, this is a great answer because someday, somehow, during the tribulation period, the Lord himself will command people to share the gospel. Even during that time, there will be two particular witnesses coming to share the good news of Christ, reminding them that God loves them. This group and 144,000 that you already know, the entire world will know about the glory of God. Sadly to say, many of them will reject him and they will harden their hearts. And even though for a, temp, for, a, for a time, these two witnesses will be protected, nothing will happen because the people will not, not only will, they don't want to hear, but when they were speaking, there were thunders, there were fire was coming out to them. It was hard listening to them. They didn't want to listen to this. They want to kill him, but nothing will hurt them for a moment. And I will read later on. We see that then the beast that is coming from the abyss was coming. And the... And that beast that is serving the Antichrist will kill these two witnesses. And it's unbelievable what will happen. When they complete their testimony, the beast that come, comes up from the bottomless pit will declare war against them and will conquer them and kill them. And for three and a half days, all people's tribe, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. And the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate. These two martyrs, these two witnesses, which is the word witness means martyr, these two witnesses will be put to death by the beast. And nobody, not even going to give, give them the dignity to have a proper burial. They will be lying on the streets for three days, three and a half days. And, and it's interesting for John thinking, and the whole world will look at them. Back in the day, probably John was thinking, how that will happen? I don't know. I'm just going to write this thing down. But you and I know today with the technology that the whole world can be looking at one thing in particular. With the internet and social media and everything, we see the power that is that all the technology can, can be focused in one, one place. So it's more doable, more believable for us to, for this to happen. So the entire continent will be looking at, the entire planet will be looking at these bodies as they were lying in the streets and everybody will be mocking at them and they will be having fun and it's interesting because back in the day i don't know you ever watching but back in the day there were greeting cards that contained this verse in the top and that that is verse on, on, on 11 11 that says all people who belong to this world is and we will gloat over and give presents to each other and they say that's the beginning of the Christmas as we know it. But it was taken out of context. He's talking about what happened with these two witnesses. But then suddenly, the Lord will resurrect them. It's not a new thing for him. He did it. 
He resurrects them in the presence of the enemies. And they'll come alive. And for three and a half days, all people strive in languages will see them. And the Lord will call them, come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies watch it. That moment will create that thousands of people will trust in God, will believe in God. But not the majority of the people. They will continue hardening their hearts. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed the ten, a tenth of the city. 7,000 of people died in that earthquake. And everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror passed. But look, the third terror is coming quickly. It's not easy for you when you try to share the gospel with your own family to be believed the way that you believe once. When you trust in the good news, they were sweet for you. It turns kind of sour when you see that your own family reject not only the gospel that you are sharing with them, but you as well. I remember when I became a believer and I was going to this little Baptist church. I remember the impact that that caused to my, my own mother. Being Roman Catholics by birth, and if you are a Mexican, that means you are a Christian or Catholic. I mean, I didn't want to leave the Catholic Church. I just want to learn how to study the Bible. And I was going to study the Bible with a group of people in this Christian church. And one day, after some time, my, my mother really warned me and says, if you continue going to that church, then you need to forget that you have a family. And she was not ready for my answer at that moment. She says, Mother, if you make me choose, you might not like my, my answer. So for that moment, it was a very difficult situation. 18 years later, my mother became a believer. 18 years later. But during those 18 years, it was very difficult for me to understand. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't experience it. They couldn't understand it. My Christian church became my own family in many ways. And I can tell you, the Lord has been faithful since then, as I've seen many people coming to know the Lord more in my own family. But it's hard. It is hard. But the Lord is asking us to be witnesses for him. Wherever we go, starting in our own Jerusalem at home, and continue with our neighbors, with extended families and friends. Wherever we go, we need to be a witness for him, not to be ashamed of him. Because we don't want them, if we really love them, we don't want them to go through these difficult times. Because they will go through these difficult times. So you truly love your parents, your children, your friends. You better start putting yourself together and understand what the gospel means. Because you need to become a witness for the Lord in your own family and friends. We need to. We have to. We have to. Lastly, we read the number three. Even our witness will be widely opposed. We need to keep going. The unstoppable glory of God rises from us as we take in the word of God, yes, as we become witnesses of the Lord, but also as we lift up our worship to God. Then the 11th angel blew up his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting from heaven, the world has now become to the, king, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. 
and he will reign forever and ever. In this verse, you will read it in the Handel's Messiah piece. He will come and reign. This is going to be finally the answer to the Lord's prayer. The kingdom of God is already here. And he is here reigning forever and ever. The 24 elders sitting on the thrones before God fell on the ground, fell on their faces to the ground and worshiped him. And they say, we give thanks to you, Lord, the Almighty, the one who is and who always was. For now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. When we understand the importance of the word of God and we take it in, we comprehend it, we understand it. It might be sweet when we see all the promises that are in the scripture. But it will be sour when we understand the implications of our commitment with Christ and the way that others react. When we understand that it's important to be a witness wherever we are, no matter what. And how people reject us as they reject the Lord. When we understand that it's worthy. Because he is worthy. Every time that we got together, every time that we are sharing that glory, it propels us to, to worship him, to lift up our worship, our words toward him who is worthy. And that's how we glorify God. As we together understand that no matter what happened in this world, or no matter what happened to us, we belong to him. And we are created to glorify his holy name. When we do, he becomes the focus of our lives more and more. He will be the center of our lives, not ours. And when we do worship the Lord, we are no longer the focus of our own life. We are going to be less and less the center of our lives. What can we do with this as an application? I remember the quote from Alan Redpath that says, before we can pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, we must be willing to pray, my kingdom go. And that's the hard part. Are you being transformed by that unstoppable glory of God? If so, are you studying the scripture, understanding, comprehending it? Enjoying the sweetness and experimenting the sourness as well or the implications of being disobedient? Are you becoming a witness for the Lord in the area where you work, where you study, where you live? Are you willing to worship him, not just with your lips, but with your own life? Reflecting his glory wherever you go. When we got and led the word of God to work in us so we can be witness for God in this world and lift up God's glory through our lives of worship, we are reflecting that glory here and now. And we're going to do it there and then. I'm never going to forget this story. Even if it's not real, it presents the point of two best friends from high school. And through the circumstances of life, each one of them went through their own ways. One became a well-known doctor, respectable scientific doctor. The other one became a humble priest, I mean, pastor in a little village church. 
in our family reunion, in a school reunion, after 25 years of not seeing each other, they, they saw each other. The doctor invited his best friend from high school to spend the weekend with him in his beach house, a beautiful mansion in front of the most wonderful places in earth. And they catch up the old times. They talk about high school and what happened after that, how they started their own families, how they decided to become who they were. The doctor find out that his best friend now was a, a pastor and started asking him questions. And after the third day when they were together, in one of those moments that they were ready to part their ways and the pastor was already packed, ready to take his car to, so he could go back home. His friend says, before you go, let, let, me, let me ask you one question. Let me ask you this question. So you're a pastor. You believe in, in that book that they call the Bible. Oh, yeah, I, I do believe. I preach it every Sunday. Do you read it? I read it every single day. But you believe every single thing that is there. Absolutely. It's the word of God and it's the truth. Hmm. Interesting. And you believe that Bible and what it says is true. And you say that I used to be your best friend and you loved me so much. How come that is in these three days, not to mention these 25 years, you never mention any single thing about what that book says to me? And the pastor was ashamed. It's true. He didn't want to lose his friendship just by sharing the truth that he knows. It might be the case of one of you. You don't want to lose your job. You don't want to lose your friendship. You don't want to lose the stability at home because you have, you have a truth and you believe it and you can die for it, you say. I don't want you to say that you can die for the truth. I would like for you that you can say you can live for the truth and that's the difference. Because if that is your case, you will never gonna stop witnessing for Christ to whoever you encounter in your life. I'm sorry, probably you were looking for the meaning of all these crazy things that we read in these two chapters. But if at least I can explain to you that the most important thing is what I just told you. How important is to understand the Bible, comprehend it. How important is to witness for Christ as we share the Bible. Because that's the way that we can worship him when we come together and celebrate. Don't sing that you love the Lord when you're not able to love his word and live it. So I will encourage you and challenge you as we continue studying this word. Let's be serious. Becoming students of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. It's so easy for us just to go through the motions, to jump from one Bible study to the next, to memorize scripture, to want to know the ins and outs of the meaning, to know more than others about what the scripture says, to fill my head with knowledge, but not letting that knowledge to go through my heart. And to continue living lives, not of victory, but of failure. To let in the world 
to imprint their mark in our heart instead of the word of God. Thank you for encouraging us as we go deeper in this book, in this book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And let us understand, Father, that the knowledge is great when it is impregnated with the practical application in our lives. Let us not go home with a firm purpose, Father, that we want to commit to you today. To be faithful witness of your word. And as we celebrate in this moment, lifting our voices, let the words of our mouth to become a commitment today. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ that we do this because he is worthy of our praise. And everybody says,